Hey everybody, and welcome back to the Post-Military Podcast, where we share stories of veterans' transition out of the military and their advice to other service members based on their life experience. Whether you are still in service, a veteran, or just someone preparing to transition into a new chapter of your life, there is something here for you to learn. I've included timestamps in the description of the episode, so head down there to see if there are any topics that are of particular interest to you. Also, while you're poking around, subscribing to the channel or podcast on your favorite platform is always greatly appreciated. Anyway, thank you so much for being here today, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Solemnly swear. Do solemnly swear. That I will support and defend. That I will support and defend. The Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Post-Military Podcast. With me today is someone that I'm very excited to have on. Before he exited service, he was the Command Sergeant Major of the Army Recruiting Command and was also the Command Sergeant Major of West Point, which is a lesser military academy, I would say, in my opinion, but uh, he probably has a different uh, different opinion. He's had a couple of jobs since then, but currently works on Fort Jackson, uh, working with the Army Reserve Ambassadors for all of the southeastern states. With me today is Command Sergeant Major Retired, Marty Wells. Marty, thanks so much for coming on today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Billy. Looking forward to it. Yeah. Well, first, let's let's get the uh, elephant out of the room. I know you because I am in a church group with your son, who also went to the Air Force Academy while I was there. And what, to put this finally officially on record, your son went to the Air Force Academy, but your son-in-law, Dave Curry, who was on this show on episode seven, went oh, to was. West Point. Okay. How do you feel about having us? Who do you think went to the right school, in your opinion? You're putting me in a bind <laughs> right up front. We only ask hard questions here on the post-military podcast. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, the, uh, I tell you what, as, as I just uh, stated before we started recording, I am the son of an Air Force pilot and the father of one as well. And so now... When I was young enough and going into the service, my eyesight, I couldn't have flown mm -hmm. because I don't think there was LASIK or anything way back then. Yeah. If, I didn't have, if I didn't have my contacts in right now, I probably couldn't see my phone, which is like <laughs> one foot from me. So, yeah, so I guess I, I flew the coop. And let me just say it's, it's interesting around Thanksgiving or Christmas time when the family's all together. Uh -huh. And it inevitably football will come into the mix or whatever. And then the friendly jousting will commence. Honestly, I'll say that any one of the service academies, you know what? I don't know about Annapolis. We don't have any Navy in our families, but any one of the academies, yeah, you can't go wrong. Seriously. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, you can't. I, I've got two brother-in-laws and a sister-in-law who all went to an academy. One of my brother-in-laws was at West Point. The other one was at Navy. And then my sister-in-law is an Air Force Academy grad. And she oh actually goodness. is coaching on the Air Force Academy team. Like on the, she's a, she's the first female coach in the Mountain West. And so we have this, it's a very oh. heated uh, football debate all the time. But because my sister-in-law 
coaches for Air Force, her older brothers yeah. are like inclined to support her, which is really funny because yeah. they have to like cheer for Air Force all the time, and that cracks me up every single time. So that's um, that's outstanding. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it was really funny. My I told my wife the first time I met her that I went to the Air Force Academy, and she was like. Both of my brothers are at the other academies. That's not special at all. And I was like, dang, that's, <laughs> oh, that hurts. Not that I was well, trying to say it braggadociously, but she preempted my braggadociousness yeah. by just telling me it didn't matter at all. So it's like, cool. <laughs> divided, uh, divided household. Oh, 100%. But <clears throat> so let's, let's talk about your history, which started with you not being able to get LASIK and fly. How, what was your career, lay out your career in the army for everybody out there listening? Okay. I, I entered the army in 1983 after I graduated from Auburn university. That's a, that's another story. And I always thought that the military was just going to be my path. Uh, and I got that from my dad, who was one of, who passed away in, in uh, 2021, just shy of his 98th birthday. And so he was born in 1923. That means he was part of the greatest generation, as we so uh, call them now. And they earned that title, in my opinion. And so he, I did, my dad was my hero. He was my role model. And so I just felt that the, the, the military whatever branch was how I would, how I would, went out the path I would follow. Strong military background in my immediate family, my two older brothers, both of whom are now deceased, both served Air Force and Army. And my dad's family, the same. His sister and his brothers came from a large family. Uh, so it, it started out in Fort Sill, Oklahoma, uh, as a part of the Lance Missile System, which was part of the field artillery branch of the Army. And, and it's out of the inventory now. So that was a long time. And, but my first two years, I was uh, stationed in Holland of all places was a, a single. It's a great way to start your military career. <laughs> yeah, it, it was. I was single, not yet married then. And it was two years at a small field artillery detachment right in the middle of a Dutch town. Yeah. And so we maintained, I could say this now, it doesn't exist. We maintained nuclear warheads in tandem with the Dutch army. Yeah. And so different times back then, different weapon systems and so what, forth, but got, I'm oh, sorry. What was it like? What was it like listening or sorry? What was it like living not to cut off your train of t thought? I apologize, but no, what was right. it like? Cause I studied military history when I was in, when I was in college. So this is really fascinating. What was it like being in Europe at a time when everyone was like there is a tensions with Russia are high now, but back when they were the USSR, what was that like when things were still relatively scary from a nuclear perspective? Yeah, we, again, we're a very small unit, less than a hundred people, uh, right there again in a Dutch community. So we had to have a top secret clearance because of the mission of, of what we maintain. And I actually won through a military board competition, a trip to East Berlin when the wall was still up. That was an interesting time as, as well. We were, as you can imagine, once we were in East Berlin, we were always, fought, we were always around, going around on a tour bus 
but we were followed by military. You could, they made no, didn't try to, to hide it or anything. It was very obvious, but it was a unique experience to be in close proximity to the, the USSR. And, but thankfully, so that was really 80, 80, 1983 to 85, uh, 24 months. And just right before the wall came down, I can't remember the exact, I want to say 1986, maybe the wall came down, but anyway, so it was uh, a unique uh, opportunity. One of the, the most telling memories that I have up there was when we were in a two week uh, field problem. And we were stationed within walking distance, and we did during a break in the exercises. We walked to the Bergen-Belsen uh, prison camp, which is where Anne Frank was actually kept in, and where Anne Frank and Frank perished. So I, I don't know if you've ever had the, the occasion to, to visit a place like that, but it's, and I remember the day, I have pictures of it in a scrapbook that's packed away somewhere. But it was a kind of a, it was in the fall. It was a wintry day, no sunshine, gloomy. And the day fit the whole aura of such a place. And, and knowing that, okay, so this was 83, 84, just 40 years prior, just 40 years, which is not much at all. When you're over there, you, you see obviously a lot of things and you learn to appreciate how much, and I'm just talking primarily of the Dutch people, how much they appreciate what happened in World War II during the liberation. Uh, obviously got to travel around to Germany, France, Belgium, and so forth, and very similar in their gratitude for U.S. Armed Forces, British Forces, and so forth that did what they had to do during that time. I haven't visited any of the sites in Europe but when I was, tra I traveled to Israel while I was in college for a, we did an exchange program with some, with the Israeli Defense Force. And I went to their Holocaust Museum and that was powerful. It was, it, that was, it was amazing. Not amazing. It, I don't even know, yeah. like awe inspiring in the worst possible way to just look at what happened and it really did give a it gave such a it gave such a such context to what was going on and what was stopped by the allied forces and it was powerful it was powerful yeah absolutely so. i i, I uh, you, you say that and i'm going to israel for two weeks in mid-october well, I hope you have fun. If you find yourself in Jerusalem, go to that museum. It's it's incredible. Yep, yep. We just had a uh, Zoom call last night about an update call going through a local church here, not the church I attend, mm -hmm. but also through, I'm actually going the extra mile on the trip. It's sponsored by Jerusalem University College. Mm -hmm. And that's who's basically is hosting us and who we pay for the trip itself. And yeah, uh, many days in Jerusalem. Absolutely. Good. Have fun. It's a, it's in, it's amazing. It's definitely a, um, it's a, I don't know. It's fascinating. It's just an incredible experience. So I hope you, I hope you like it. What happened after your time in Holland? Well, after Holland, I went back to Fort Sill, Oklahoma as a, an AIT or advanced individual instructor at the Lance 
at the Field Artillery School and the Lance Missile Division. So basically to teach young recruits, which I was one of them just two years prior, how to, to work with the Lance Missile System. And a, a small family note, if I may, while I was there, I served with my present or one of my present brother-in-law who, who eventually introduced me to, to his younger sister, became my wife. So we, I had no idea she even existed when the first several years we knew each other. And then right after I left to go back to Fort Sill, Oklahoma, he followed to do the exact same job. So our first two assignments in the Army were at the same place. Uh, so yeah, the Field Artillery School, which is still at Fort Sill. I don't think Fort Sill has changed its name. You, you probably are privy to a lot of the Army installations changing their names here in the last 60 days. Yeah, I, I don't even keep up with it. I just, I'll say Fort Bragg and someone goes, it's Fort Liberty now. And I go, it's Fort Liberty. Like, yeah, yeah. Okay, I guess it's Fort Liberty now. I just wait till someone corrects me. Yep, yeah. <laughs> Take, takes a while to get used to it. Fort Benning is no longer Fort Benning. Yep. Uh, and I don't so. think a single infantry officer will call it anything other than Fort Benning for years. <laughs> well, other, other than the fact that it is no, or, uh, now named after someone who's very deserving of it. Uh, mm -hmm. Colonel Hal, Hal Moore, I'm sure you've heard of him, or mm -hmm. at least uh, probably seen the, the movie that mm -hmm. he was depicted in with uh, Mel Gibson. We were soldiers yep. once. And, yeah. Yep. But yeah, so a lot of changes coming. Yeah. So you went to, so you went back to Fort Sill, you uh -huh. were in AIT, and then what happened after that? Well, actually about, so I was there for two years as well. And sometime in that time when I was there, I said, I think I want to try something different. So I started to apply to the special forces course. And uh, I know I, I went and got my security clearance updated because when I left Europe, I no longer had a need to maintain a top secret clearance. So I had to get that updated and, the, and some other things, a physical, so on and so forth. But then right about the same time, I came down on the the DA or Department of, of the Army selection list for recruiting duty. So I thought, well, maybe you're pretty much stuck. You're either going to get selected for recruiting duty or drill sergeant duty. More than likely, at some point in your career, a lot of people do. And I said, well, maybe I'm supposed to do this for a few years, and then I can come back to what I was going to try out for. So yeah, so my, I was selected for recruiting duty. And of all places to be stationed, my first assignment on recruiting duty was in <laughs> Las Vegas. So I, let's see, that was in 1988. Okay. So you were there during the old school sh Las Vegas strip. Oh, yes. Yes. That's, um, that's cool. a, a lot of, a lot of the well-known hotels that are, that are standing now were being built when I was there. Wow. I'm sorry for the cough. Oh, you're fine. I've got a little something that won't, won't go away. But yeah, so I was there when the, the Tropicana and the, the Sands, mm -hmm. which is famous for the Rat Pack. That's where the Rat Pack used to, to entertain. I actually saw that one being brought down because when they tore that one down, I saw that. Uh, also, when I was there, I remember I lived in a, a set of uh, apartments in West Columbia. Mm -hmm. which kind of overlooked the, the strip from a distance. 
you could see all the uh, lights from the hotels and so forth at night. <clears throat> but while I was there, Sammy Davis Jr. passed away. Hmm. I assume you know who Sammy Davis Jr. is. I actually don't know who Sammy Davis Jr. is. Okay, you you have to look him up. He okay. is well, or do you know what the Rat Pack is? Maybe I do you, know maybe, what I know what the Rat Pack is. Okay, so the Rat Pack for some people who may not: Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin. Yep. Mm-hmm. Let's see, Joey Bishop, Shirley MacLaine was part of it, and of course Sammy Davis Jr. I know I'm Peter Lawford, and I know I'm forgetting some. But they were just great entertainers, crooners all. They sang, they act. It was a little bit of comedy. They are just icons in that era. They're mm-hmm. legends. Yeah. And, of course, I think I mentioned Frank Sinatra. Yep. But, but uh, so Sammy Davis Jr. was an incredible entertainer, singer, incredible tap dancer. When you have a, a chance after this, just, just look him up or look up okay. some YouTubes. With Sammy Davis Jr. on the Johnny Carson show. I will tag and, that in the YouTube description right now. So Yeah. They don't Johnny Carson was the best. He he was head and shoulders as far as late night above anybody I think is out there now. Anyway, I'm old school. So anyway, Sammy Davis Jr. passed away when I was there. So he again was a Las Vegas legend. And that was the first time, and it was, I don't know the date that they did that, but I remember watching it from, from near where I lived, that all the lights on the strip went out. They blacked it out and that had never been done before for anyone. And it was just, and it was like in sync. Obviously they planned it for a long time. And I can't remember how long they were out, probably two or three minutes or whatever. And I would imagine they've since done that for Frank Sinatra and others. I'm not sure. But anyway, that was something unique that that happened there. When I was there, Las Vegas was one of the fastest growing metropolitan areas in the entire country because they're building so many hotels. And as more people move in, you have to build high schools, so on and so forth. So recruiting was, we did, we did fairly well back then in the mid eighties. That's really cool. And yeah. So you, how, what years were you there? If you said you were there from 88 till when? I was there from 88 to almost to 93. So I was there about five years. Oh, wow. Okay. So was recruiting pumped up by like desert storm and everything else? Yeah, it, uh, it was the, we did fairly well. And I went from a, what I called a field recruiter eventually to a recruiting station commander during that interim. And we had some good months and then we had some months where we struggled a little bit, but overall that area, it was part of the Phoenix, Arizona recruiting battalion. Uh, And of course the recruiting command is spread out everywhere to include not only CONUS, the continental United States, but of course, Alaska, Hawaii, and even uh, Europe, Virgin Islands and so forth, Eucharist everywhere. It was a unique experience, and, and sometime during that, uh, I think the first two or three years I was there, I did meet with success as an individual recruiter and was asked to consider converting to a permanent, to a permanent recruiter, what, what was back then called a, a 79 Romeo, that was the MOS. So my aspiration of the Special Forces just took a back seat because we made rank real quick. If you're 
good in recruiting. The rank came quickly. Not that it was just about that. But so some unique opportunities, obviously a unique place. Casinos are everywhere uh, that you can look. Not that I was big time into gambling or anything like that, but uh, casinos and slot machines are everywhere as well. You go into a 7-Eleven, there's slot machines there. Uh, and all these little casinos and restaurants and so forth. Great buffets to eat, which I think, uh, I would imagine is still the case. I haven't been back to Las Vegas since, I don't think, since I left. Well, no, I did go. I did. Oh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I, I did go once or twice as the recruiting command star major, but, but that'll come later. So, yeah. So you leave Las Vegas in 93, and where do you go uh, next? I went to to Phoenix, Arizona to work in the operations shop for the battalion. And we actually resided in a a, a small community called Ahwatukee, which is a Native American name, is unique and nice place to live. You can stand the heat in either one of those places, Vegas or Phoenix. Everybody, their first inclination is to say, well, it's a dry heat. When it gets to 115, 120 degrees, and it's still over 110 at eight, nine o'clock at night, it's hot, period. So it was a unique opportunity. Learned a lot while I was there as far as my MOS and in recruiting. And uh, and our first uh, child, our daughter, Rosalie, was actually born there on Luke Air Force Base, which is very near. So that's always has a special memory for us. That's really cool. You're really knocking it out of the park so far in getting stationed at like fantastic spots. So yeah, yeah, we we had some other places uh, that followed on that, but those are two. We started off pretty well, and I was I was still well. No, during that time when I was still in Las Vegas, I did meet my wife through again my my brother-in-law, who I mentioned earlier that I was stationed with my first two assignments. And no, she, 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 uh, I was, I was actually living with my cousin and his wife. I was renting a room from them in a house and not to drag it out too long, but I met my wife over the phone. It was a cold call, (laughs) which, which I was used to in recruiting because we did that every day. And so my brother-in-law, Dave, he gave me her number and I said, well, and sure enough, I called her and she had the. I guess I can say this, this, the sexiest voice still does, the sexiest phone voice I've ever, I've ever heard. Uh, and she was, she grew up in the Bronx. And so by then she was out of school and she was working for AIG on, gosh, downtown New York, uh, the, the Wall Street, good grief. Uh, yeah, she's she working on Wall Street for, for AIG. So we began writing letters because there really wasn't the internet back then. And eventually she came out to visit. Uh, and, and when she came out, I asked her to marry me. And that was in, that was May of, of 1992. And in November, we were married in New York in, in the house of one of her friends. Uh, you know, a nice small uh, ceremony, but my family and hers came. And it's a funny story. Before we, we were married, my family was living in Maryland. My dad had retired from the Air Force and was in his post-military career then. Gert comes from New York during a, uh, when I took some leave and uh, went to 
to came to our house and she visited. Not only did she visit, but she brought her pastor with her to basically check us out. So that's a funny story. Of course, my family fell in love with her. And so, yeah, so we were married on 14 November, 92. And the next November, the last day of November, November 30th of 93, our daughter was born. Okay. So you finish up in Vegas and then you have your daughter now, you have a wife now, where do you go next? Okay. So from there, I was selected uh, to serve as an instructor at the, what was then called the recruiting and retention school, which, which used to be right here at Fort Jackson, where I live now in Columbia, South Carolina. But it is now the Recruiting and Retention College and is located at Fort Knox, Kentucky. But so I came here to to serve as an instructor to teach the operations course at the recruiting school. And while we were there, your friend and my oldest son, Jeremiah, was born. He was born during that that time. And so that was that was an exciting time. And, and that was our, obviously our first assignment here in Columbia, South Carolina. Uh, the, fir- the first of three, three assignments uh, here. So it, it really was a place that kind of just appealed to us, that grew on us. And so my wife and I, empty nesters now, this is our home for a while. Obviously, we're going to do a lot of traveling, but this is our come back to home. So you were in South Carolina, first of three assignments. You were trained uh-huh. in operations. And so what did you do? <laughs> after you finished up there for after your first time in South Carolina? Okay. There I became, I was promoted to E8 and which in the army is a, either a master sergeant or a first sergeant. Uh, so I was assigned as a first sergeant. Once I went to the first sergeant course at El Paso, Texas in Fort Sam Houston uh, at the New Haven Recruiting Company in New Haven, Connecticut. And our company headquarters was literally one street over from Yale University. So imagine, and that was from 97 to 2000. Imagine trying to recruit in that part of the country during that time. It was not a pretty sight. It it was, and it probably still is in that particular area because it's just uh, a lot of... When you're talking to Yale, Harvard, and so forth, all the Ivy League schools and things like that, that's a tough market to recruit for the Army. It's just like a lot of parents would say, well, we, we think it's great uh, for other people's kids. But learned a lot. It, it's a very uh, unique part of the country from a historical perspective, obviously, where our nation, nation was birthed out of in, in a lot of respects. I love the small town, the town green concept of there. We actually lived in a military housing <clears throat> development, actually a little neighborhood that was managed by the Navy out of Groton, Connecticut, but it was in Fairfield, Connecticut that we lived, which is the one of the most highest cost of living areas in the entire country. That's a place where people like Martha Stewart lived, a lot of the athletes from New York, and it was not, it's real close to New York City. So, so, you just had, so you just had super prime real estate for way cheaper than anybody else. 
Oh, yeah. yeah. During that time in our life, it suited us perfectly. Yeah. Um, that's cool. But, but it was, we met a lot of good friends, some of which we still have stayed in contact with. But again, tough to recruit, tough area. Yeah, I believe it. The uh, Yeah, I can't even imagine having a career where you have to like, I mean, I like the military, obviously, but going in and like trying to sell people on that dream is, uh, must have been yeah, so. It's, uh, some people, it's not for everyone. And yeah. again, it just takes a certain personality. Mm-hmm. And I'm an introvert by nature myself. But usually when I put on the uniform, I can, I would imagine Clark Kent, when he goes to the phone booth and changes into a Superman outfit, he, <laughs> he becomes someone else. Now, that's how it worked for me and, and yeah. a lot of other people. You almost have to, cool. to see it that way. I like that. Okay. So mm-hmm. you finish up your time in Connecticut and what year is it when you leave? Uh, that was 2000. 2000. Okay. So and where do you go next? I go back to Fort Jackson. And uh, back, back to the recruiting school. What was it like being in army recruiting during 9-11? Oh, goodness. That's a, now that's another assignment. Uh, oh, wow. Okay. So I'll get to that. That's an excellent okay. question. And, and there's a little story behind it that okay. impacted our family. Yeah. So, so yeah. So I go back to Fort Jackson as a, as a division chief in the recruiting school. And I was in charge of. I want to say about 10 to 12 soldiers, career recruiters like me that, that taught the basic recruiter course, which was a six week course back then. And I think it might still be that. And like I said, that, that school is now at Fort Knox, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. But so yeah, it was there for a fairly short time, only about 18 months, if that. But again, we went back to a place that we were familiar with, back to a, a church that we were familiar with and so forth. So again, it just kept its uh, appeal. I know I, f- I forgot to mention that while we were in Connecticut, the birth of our third, third of three, Noah, who just graduated from the Citadel last year, last May, was born in Bridgeport, Connecticut, which is like a sister city to Fairfield, real close. Mm-hmm. So we're a, f- a family of five now. And so we go back to to Fort Jackson, served there a short time, and then found out that I was selected for Sergeant Major, which is the highest pay grade, E9 for the Army. Of course, E9 is the highest pay grade for any branch of the service. And from there, I went to what was then known as the U.S. Army Sergeant's Major Academy Mm -hmm. uh, at Fort Bliss, Texas, uh, El Paso, which has been in the news a lot lately because it's right on the border. Yep. You've probably heard of uh, Juarez, uh, cartel. Uh, yeah, that was the closest <laughs> city. I mean, El Paso is is where. Yeah, you're right next the to border, you're... you're at Juarez. Uh, yeah, right now is it's a tough place. Yeah, uh, but that was that was a ten month school, and we went as a family. A lot of people that go to that course now, and and then when I went as what. This commonly known as a geographic bachelor. The soldier just goes there, leaves his, his or her family at a place, and then they join up after that. But we went everywhere as a family. And so that was, the course started in, I want to say, August, July, or probably July or August of 2001. And then, uh, so graduated 2002. But yeah, 11 September 2001. 
you're in class probably was in class and then came home I, and we live right there on post which was affectionately known what was the name of the place these quarters reminded you of the place where the Flintstones live. Do you know who the Flintstones are? The cartoon? Yes, I do know the Flint. Yes, I yeah, do know. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, Bedrock. They were, they, Bedrock. <laughs> Bed, that, yeah. that was a nickname, Bedrock. Yeah. But we made it a home. And so we were watching the, of course, they tape, laid the videotape endlessly on the news. And what made it even more of an anxious time for our family was my wife's sister, Rosa, uh, who also lives here in Columbia right now, she worked uh, in the World Trade Center. And I don't know if you remember, a couple of years prior, I was in the, I can't remember what year, but before that, um, bombs, the, right? There was a bombing at the uh -huh. World Trade Center. She was there and she lost a lot of friends. And as the story goes, she was late getting to work that day on 9-11. Wow. It had something to do with her having to get some clothes for her sons or whatever. Mm -hmm. But at a certain point, she knew something was up, so she didn't go to work. She lost a lot of friends, obviously, yeah. as, as did a lot of people. But it was some anxious moments until my wife, whose name is Gert, short for Gertrude, before she could ascertain that she was, in fact, okay. Mm -hmm. So there was a couple hours that went by that, yeah, stressful, absolutely. So that was that was a unique time, and of course, for, and until we went to the graduated, and as I'm looking up right now at the diploma on on my wall in my second floor man cave or of our home, yeah, it was it was a unique time to be yeah. stationed at the Sharp Major Academy. I can't even, yeah, I can't even imagine what it'd have been like to have all those E nines mm. in a classroom when the yeah, war on terror kicks off exactly because you have all of the every class in star major academy is going to be made up of virtually every mos in the army yeah you and know all really important people. yeah yeah a lot of high-ranking non-commissioned officers and so forth and so it was we were class 52 and again it was uh special time a unique time to, to go there yeah i can i can only imagine what what was the reaction what was the reaction like where I'm, I'm shocked that they kept you guys going i'm i'm surprised that they didn't send everyone back to op to like go do ops well, wherever <clears throat> they were needed well it was there's a lot of people that that wanted to go back and a lot of you know who i need to get back in the fight so on and so yeah. forth the army is going to keep rolling along, yeah. Despite not having certain people in place, the same could be said right now uh, for the, all of the military because the the chairman of the Joint Chiefs or the next one is being held up because of uh, political issues mm -hmm. and yeah. so forth. But the military is going to keep rolling along. That makes sense. Uh, and the people who are in the class are going to be better served, and the army is going to be better served that they complete the course mm -hmm. and have learned what they need to do to operate successfully with a high level of competence from that point on in their career, to be honest with you. That makes sense. 
And so once you finished that course, where did you go? Did you go back to, did you go back to South Carolina? Well, I thought I was, I thought I was going to, and I was still with the, the, in recruiting, I was still with the recruiting command. So I was informed that I would be the, my initial assignment as a Sergeant Major would be as the operations Sergeant Major for the first recruiting brigade, which was, and still is headquartered at Fort Meade, Maryland. And you may remember previously when my wife came to visit us, my, my family and I, it was in Maryland. So I said, well, that's okay. I can wait on becoming a command sergeant major and get some experience at that level close to my home. So that's where I thought I was going to go. And the day that I was promoted, which was one April, 2002. So April Fool's Day. We had the promotion ceremony and my oldest brother, Dave, who lived in Georgia, army veteran, Vietnam vet, he made the trip actually with, I think his wife came with him, my sister-in-law, maybe who is, who's still living to, to, to the recruiting school and pinned on the rank during my promotion ceremony. So that was a, a special time. And uh, so as we're walking outside somewhere during that day on a, a huge courtyard, kind of like the central uh, area of the whole campus. Um, someone from the operations division of the Sergeant Major Academy came up to me and said, Hey, Sergeant Major Wells. And I said, yes. And said, Your orders have been changed. And I said, really? I said, I, th I thought I was going close to home in Maryland. He says, no, you're actually going to serve as the command sergeant major to the Des Moines Army Recruiting Battalion. I said, Des Moines, and my wife was standing right there. And I said, Des Moines, Iowa. He said, yep. And my wife, again, he's Puerto Rican, says, are there any Puerto Ricans in Iowa? Hit. And I said, well, there will be when you get there. So we didn't know, like, anything about Des Moines Recruiting Battalion. And we thought, our initial reaction was we we're disappointed because my wife loved my family uh, and they loved her. And so we, it took a while for us to get used to it, but you got to accept it and just drive on. And, but it turned out to be a very good assignment and one of the best places, and I'm sure it still is, to raise a family. We were there for two years and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a Christian believer. I truly believe that the Lord has a plan for his reasons. And it turned out well. We found a great church. I learned about the, the areas in, the, in that part of the country. I could tell you a humorous little story, if I may, about certain things about Iowa. Number one, there's corn everywhere. That's no surprise, I'm sure, to, to anyone listening on, on this or that will listen to it. And it had the blackest dirt I've ever seen in my life. As black as the tires on your vehicle. It was just so rich, and as a result of the greenest grass I've ever seen in people's lawns, so on and so forth. But so getting back to core, so my wife, as the story goes, she was visiting like a uh, like a, a fruit and vegetable stand somewhere near where we lived one day after we'd lived there for a while, <clears throat> and she she saw a sign for peaches and cream, and she was thinking, <clears throat> "Wow, I could really use." I can really use some peaches and cream right now. 
hot day and so forth. So she goes up to the, to the lady, it, it was a lady that was there. I think it was near a shopping center or whatever, but she said, well, I could really use some peaches and cream right now. And the lady looked at her and said something like, you're not from around here, are you? And she says, no, I'm not. I said, why do you ask? Well, here's what peaches and cream is. And she pulled up an ear of corn and peeled it. And peaches of cream, as far as corn is concerned, is like a mixture of yellow and white corn on the same cob. It is <laughs> delicious. It's really good. It, it's it, very good corn. It, it is great. My wife, oh, that's one of her favorite stories when we talk about. And we had family. We had my father's sister, who since passed last year. My Aunt Norma lived in Iowa. And some of my first cousins, who were like additional brothers and sisters to me and still are. So we, they, we got to visit them. But so Iowa, in that place, we actually lived in West Des Moines, is a very special memory for us. That's awesome. We, I just rode across the state on a, a bicycle for a, a ride. I don't know if you yes. ran into it while you, for a rag ride, which uh, yes. I do every year with my father-in-law. So uh, I was just near Des Moines like three weeks ago. Yeah. So. As a matter of fact, I may be mixing up events and even states. I could, I, I know the rag ride and I could have sworn that when I was there, Bo Jackson rode in it. I'm sure he did. So I, it's a big, I mean, it's a really big famous thing in Iowa. So I wouldn't be shocked if he did. We were there for, for two years. And another thing about just God's grand design, I'm an Auburn grad and you're probably aware that our mascot is the tiger. We're the Auburn Tigers. Yes. But our, but our, our, uh, our, uh, our chant, uh, what was War it? Eagle. It's War Eagle. Yep. Like said, our, uh, that's not a, the war eagle is not our mascot. It's our, our battle cry, uh, okay. is war eagle. And there's a story behind that, why that is. But so the nickname of the Des Moines recruiting battalion was a war eagles battalion. Mm. And I had that's no sweet. idea until I got there. Uh, so that was, again, it was almost like it was why, meant to happen. A question I wanted to ask you before we finish, before we keep going in your career is why did you, if you graduated from Auburn, why did you end up enlisting? Yeah, there's a real big backstory to that, Billy. That's one of my big <laughs> rocks of regret that I put in my life's backpack. Had I done the right things as far as my school scholastics was concerned, I would have been a commission officer. But I was, admittedly, I was, I was a knucklehead. I didn't have my I wasn't focused on the real reason I was there. I did well in, in certain things, but it just didn't happen. And it was just due to, to me. And mm. I own that. I've forgiven myself. I know my Lord and Savior has, but it's, it's still there. It's, it's still there. Well, as, a, <clears throat> as an unbiased third-party observer, I'll tell you that it seems like you've had a pretty phenomenal career in the Army. And... Uh, as an officer, I always, I was always very envious of the enlisted individuals that worked with and for me because they were always much smarter and they were always much more competent than me. And I just have a lot of respect for the enlisted corps. So well, I think I, you did it right, in I, my opinion. I appreciate that. I attribute it to God's grace. But mm -hmm. like I say, I was very blessed in, in my career. 
<clears throat> by opportunities mm -hmm. that came my way, people mm -hmm. I met, opportunities I had, but that's why. And so, yeah, a lot of special memories in, in Des Moines. I worked for a great battalion commander. It was his first assignment mm -hmm. as a lieutenant colonel in a command position. A big guy, like literally outside a linebacker for, gosh, a school right here in South Carolina. Gosh, remember the, the name of it. But it's a D1 school. Not uh, in South Carolina? Yeah. Clemson? Oh, no, not Clemson. Smaller school. Anyway, I'll think of it. You can okay. cut all this out. I can't, I can't believe <laughs> I, I can't think of that school. I one out. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, he's a good guy. A real, really good guy. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Carl Richardson. And I, unfortunately, I've lost contact with him. But, but he made that experience. I think we worked well together. We had a mutual good. respect for each other, without a doubt. So where did you go after you finished up at the recruiting battalion in uh, Des Moines? Well. From there, uh, it was a unique opportunity. I was actually asked by the command sergeant major of the recruiting command, a position which I would hold later on, if I would consider applying to become the commandant of the Soldier Support Institute Non-Commissioned Officer Academy at Fort Jackson, <clears throat> which is still at Fort Jackson. The Soldier Support Institute back then was made up of the finance school, the accident general school, the chaplain school was part of, or, and still is part of the social support institute or SSI. So fine. And the recruiting school was there then. So those four main areas. So you had finance as far as NCOs, finance specialists, human resources, uh, career recruiters, chaplain assistants, all going to this one academy at Fort Jackson. And the commandant, which was a, a command sergeant major, was either up to that time, either from the adjutant general branch of the human resource or generally finance specialist. I don't think they had ever had a, a chaplain assistant CSM. And they never had a career recruiter CSM then. So I put my hat in the ring and, and interviewed for the position and was, was selected. So that was a, a kind of a unique opportunity. Normally someone, and I remember speaking to the, the, the commanding general of the recruiting command uh, at a certain point. And he was saying when I was at the, still at the Des Moines recruiting battalion, and he, myself, Colonel Richardson were out to dinner one night when the commanding general was in our area. <clears throat> and General uh, Rochelle, asked me, Sergeant Major Wells, where do you see yourself going from this assignment? I said, well, sir, more than likely, I see myself going to a second battalion and a similar assignment, just in a different place. And he started to smile and shake his head like east-west as in, no. I said, that's not necessarily the way it has to be. Is not necessarily the way that way in the rest of the army because you don't necessarily have to serve in the same position for two, three times like some of my peers did. And I said, well, that's interesting, sir. If I may ask, where do you see Sergeant Major Wells going from this point? And he said, well, I see Sergeant Major Wells going from here to, to a brigade assignment, to a recruiting brigade, 
to, I see you going from there to, uh, there's a couple of other assignments. Can't remember where they were. And one of them was, oh, the, oh, the command sergeant major of the recruiting school, which I had experience in. And I don't think he mentioned the NCO Academy then. I said, well, that's interesting, sure. I, I appreciate that. And so it wasn't long after that, that I was asked, and I'm guessing he might've asked the command sergeant major of the, of the recruiting command to ask me to apply for that job. I don't know that to be the case, but it wouldn't surprise me. And so I did. And then when I was, it was, when I was found out I was selected, we were at a major training event of which General Rochelle attended. And he got up in front of all these senior NCOs and commanders at the battalion and brigade level. So a bunch of lieutenant colonels, colonels, and other command sergeants major and made the announcement that the first 79 Romeo to ever hold this position is Command Sergeant Major Marty Wells, blah, blah, blah. So it made it a little more special. So we came back here for the third time. Uh, yeah, and was there for two years, one of the best assignments I've ever had. And, and, I, and I say that because of the NCOs with whom I served, the first sergeants and the sergeant first classes and, and the staff sergeants who were all instructors <clears throat> at this academy, they were a professional. And we did a lot of good things, I think, there. One of the things I think that is more unique, these were a bunch of finance specialists, human resources, career recruiters, chaplain assistants going to this academy. And we instituted, among other things, uh, in our PT uh, program, combatives. So I made it uh, a rule that all the instructors had to go to the combatives course, which was then taught at, it might still be, at Fort Jackson, to include me as a command sergeant major. I went to the, I can't remember how long of it, it was two or three weeks. Well, combatives in the Army is like, it's not wrestling, but grappling and so forth. And it would wear you out. But I think it gave us credibility when people were coming through the course, whatever course they were going through in our PT program, which is always in the early mornings, we got to teach at least some basic combatives, which they wouldn't have gotten had they not come through there. And one of the things I must admit, my ego is getting the best of me. A lot of, in any branch of the military, most units have a motto that they go by, and that's been that way for forever. But the NCO Academy didn't have one. I said, we, we got to change this. So I came up with embrace the challenge, exceed the standard. Uh, that became our most, and when you walked into the building, which is a beautiful academy, which is now the command headquarters of Fort Jackson, that's another story. We had a huge, appliques with the NCO creed and our motto put on the wall, which is still up on Fort Jackson, a different place. And actually one of my most cherished possessions is a wooden watch that Jeremiah gave me many years ago that has that motto on the back of it, engraved in it. And it's, but it's still the motto. It is still the motto there. I was asked to be a guest speaker there maybe a year and a half, two years ago. And I, I walked in, the academy is now at the Soldier Sport Institute building, but that motto is everywhere. You see it everywhere. So I love that. Yeah. It's a good motto. It's got a great ring to it. <laughs> yeah. It's so, got a lot of things that, are, that just apply to life in general, whether you're a civilian or not, or a, a yeah. soldier or not. 
So after you finished up your time there, where did you go? Where'd you go next? Well, from there, I was actually offered by the, the USAREC, again, the U.S. Army Recruiting Command Sergeant Major, an, an assignment as the 6th Recruiting Brigade Command Sergeant Major. <clears throat> now, the 6th Recruiting Brigade was what, what I was part of when I was in Las Vegas. But back then, if I'm not mistaken, they, that recruiting, that brigade headquarters, it wasn't in Las Vegas. So they wanted to send me back to Las Vegas. So I talked to my wife and we really weren't too keen on going back to Las Vegas and raising our kids at that point in their lives. Even though I'm not saying Las Vegas is a bad place, but we just, it didn't feel right. So then the command sergeant major understood and, and I was going to do something with the medical recruiting brigade. I can't even remember what the assignment was. It, it was going to be at Fort Knox. And I also was actually seeking out a position, a deployed position overseas. And I want to say it was in either Iraq or Afghanistan. And that, that story goes real quick. My administrative assistant, back then we might have even called it secretary. She was a Department of the Army civilian. And her husband, who was a colonel in the Army, was stationed over there. And I, I knew him. She had introduced me to him in person sometime previous, and we were corresponding email. And he was telling me about a position. They were trying to stand up an NCO academy over there. And for people in the Afghan or Iraqi army, and they needed someone to oversee it. He said, Sergeant Major, I think you'd be perfect for this. And it was intriguing. One of my only regrets in the Army was never having been deployed because once you're a career recruiter, you basically stay here. So some people say we're deployed in Ushurek. It's just, you just don't go overseas uh, because, because it is unlike any other assignment in a lot of ways. So I did. I sent him information on my resume, so on and so forth. <clears throat> and he said, Sergeant Major, we'd like to have you. And we'd, it would, We'd need you within about 30 days. So it was you know, a unique assignment. Yeah, that, that was fast. It was very unusual, very unique opportunity. Well, ab about that time, I learned that the USARA Command Sergeant Major was retiring. And so the announcement comes out. And I thought about, you know what? There's probably no chance I would be selected. But I called him up and asked him. I said, what do you think about me putting in my application for your job? And he said, I think you should. And I said, sir, Major, I've never really served in a recruiting brigade CSM position, but the position I was in as the commandant was equal to that. And no 79 Romeo had ever served in that position. So I said, so, so that's how I justified it in my mind. <clears throat> and so I put a, a packet in. I met with the commanding general. General Bostic, during his travels to Fort Jackson, now his office, recruiting command headquarters is at Fort Knox, Kentucky. And so he interviewed me at the recruiting school. <clears throat> went well, and uh, I don't know how much time went by until my commanding general of the Soldier Support Institute of Fort Jackson, she gave me a call and said, congratulations, you've been selected. And I honestly, I, I couldn't believe it. Uh, it took... It took, I remember the day I received the phone call. It was, I was in my office 
and I let it sink in. And I think maybe even before I called my wife, I might've called my dad. But, and, and Gert wouldn't have minded that. My dad just was my greatest fan. And he was just so impressed by that. So, yeah, so very unexpected. And I can name at least one person that probably should have been selected over me. Anyway, he's a good man. But so, yeah, so we, that's where we went. We went to Fort Knox for the first time. First and only, only time. And what was that like? I tell you, the recruiting command, especially at that level, because that's the pinnacle, that's the, the highest CSM position in the entire command. So at that time, I want to say we had 41 battalions. Each one of those had a, a lieutenant colonel and a command sergeant major assigned to it. We had at least seven brigades. Each one of those had a colonel and a CSM assigned. So a lot of senior ranking NCOs. And the recruiting command doesn't really have uh, junior non-commissioned officers. We don't have E1s to E3s. And we did have some corporal recruiters, but not too many. So generally, it's very NCO-centric, uh, E5s to, to E9s. And USREC is in perpetual motion. And it gets almost to where it's like a drug. You just get used to the pace. It's a very much a, what have you done for me lately business? And back then, one of the things that General Bostic mentioned to me during my interview was the toxic leadership environment in, in the recruiting command. And it was there. There was a lot of pressure. If you didn't make the mission, <clears throat> you, you heard about it at, at whatever level. And, and, and he and I, we wanted to change that. And, and you don't change like that, something like that overnight. It, it takes time. It's just like a, an aircraft carrier trying to do a U-turn. It takes a lot of ocean and a lot of time. And so that was one of our focal points. But, but a lot is a very stressful environment. It's not for everybody. It's very oh. it's fascinating. Like when you really think about it, recruiting in the military is really the closest thing that exists to like a revenue generating sales role outside of the military. You're the only, you're the only people that you're generating resources by going out and getting in the middle, everyone else, like you have a budget that the taxpayer just gives you. And that's really, those are your resources that you have to manage. But for recruiting, it's like go out, convince people to join the service, you have to sell people on that dream. And uh, like, that's tough. Uh, yes, so. it's, everything you said is spot on, almost too good. <laughs> and I say that <laughs> the word sales, because you're right. Yeah. You're basically, you're asking people to consider making probably what is up to that point in their life, the most important decision they've ever made in their life. Mm -hmm. And that is to, to decide to, to join the army or our, in our case, hopefully we hope it is, is the army. But I'm um, back then at the recruiting school, which I was stationed twice, it, we used to do sales training. Yeah, if you know, look up somebody called Lee Du Bois sales training, he mm -hmm. goes way back, but we eventually got away from that. 
then we consider that as more of a counseling session because sales just brings up certain perceptions and so negative uh, yeah, negative it things. is what it is yeah. uh, some people are, are good at it and, and some people aren't very good and they choose other means of doing the right thing i won't get into that too much but recruiters are only human and, and the army's made up of a microcosm of our society in our nation that's just the way it is <clears throat> but it is you are trying to find out what i i, I doubt they use that term in, this term anymore but back then what was a person's dominant buying motive? Was it training? Was it education? Was it service to country? Money for college? All these things. And you learn that by speaking to them and listening to them. And at the same time, telling them your army story. And hopefully that appeals to them. And obviously in recruiting, we heard the, the word no a lot. And back when I was recruiting as a field recruiter in Las Vegas, we, it was telephone or face-to-face. -face. Uh, and a lot of, there wasn't any such thing as social media and so forth. But I tell you, recruiting right now is even more challenging because, they're, because of the changes in our society, uh, whether it be politically, socially, educationally in our schools, and now our colleges and universities. And I won't get into that, but I have some definite opinions on on. on on my, my beliefs and, and what certain things that are happening in our nation, but the recruiting market for any branch, uh, I'll tell you, Billy, if the Air Force is hurting for people, we're in bad shape because the Air Force is much smaller. They can be more selective in who they take, uh, such as very similar to the Marine Corps. But the Army's recruiting mission back when I was a command sergeant major of the recruiting command, the Army's recruiting mission was about 26% higher for any given fiscal year than all the other services combined. So that if the Army did well in any particular area, generally the other services did well also because the Army recruiting market really drives recruiting for the entire military. I, I remember, yeah, I, I remember a meeting at the Pentagon where General Bosick and I were attending with a bunch of high-ranking people to include the Secretary of the Army, which is about as high as you can go other than the Vice President President. And he made a comment that he said, other than the war itself, he believed that the recruiting mission was the most important mission in the Army. And And I think that the same could go now. We need to get good people, qualified people in our armed services, any branch. And it's not easy it's for a lot of reasons, a lot of which, all of which you probably are familiar with. Yeah. So once you, how did you end up at West Point once you finished up your time at Army Recruiting? Well, I was only the USREC Command Sergeant Major for about 18 months. And then, and then similar to when the time when I saw the USAREC Command Sergeant Major position advertised in an email in certain lanes, uh, I saw the one for West Point. And I said, wow, that was, I was always enamored. I'm a history, but I majored in history in Auburn, but I'm always intrigued by history and definitely by the academies. And of course, West Point, founded in 1802, is the oldest academy. And so the, just the aura of that place really 
got his grip on me and I mentioned it to my wife. We thought it'd be a great place to take our kids in that environment. And I, I spoke to, to my boss, Major General Tom Bostick. He said, Marty, I think this would be a great opportunity. He's a West Pointer himself. And at that time, once you became the USAREC Sergeant Major, that was generally your last position. You generally retired out of that position because you reached the top of the pyramid and there, there wasn't any other place to go. But while I was a USAREC CSM, not because necessarily I was a USAREC CSM, we did find other opportunities, for instance, for career recruiter first sergeants to serve as first sergeants at Fort Jackson in a basic training environment, which is great. It worked out great. And eventually had other opportunities. So I, I put my name in the hat. And I remember when I was visiting the Denver recruiting battalion during my travels as the USAREC command sergeant major, I had arranged for a, a virtual interview, which we did when I was at the Denver battalion headquarters. That was a first interview. And I was informed, hey, we'd like to have you come here to do a second interview, uh, which I did. And I went to West Point to the soup, uh, uh, to superintendent, which as the superintendent at the Air Force Academy is still like basically the president of the universe and is a two-star. <clears throat> and so imagine that I was the superintendent of West Point, some of the people that have held that position. Do you know any of them? No, I don't, but I would imagine that they're very important people. One of them is Robert E. Lee. <laughs> yeah. And, and another one is uh, Douglas MacArthur. Yeah. Somewhat important people in the realm of military history. Yeah. Yeah. So I tell you, you know, it, it reeks of history. Now, any of the academies now do. Of course, the Air Force but, is, the, is the youngest. But, yeah, but the, the people that are coming out of West Point, like it's... It's insane. Like the who's who in the zoo has been going there since oh, yeah, pre-Civil yeah. War. And, and, so. and the soup's house on West Point, Robert E. Lee lived there. MacArthur lived there. It's the same house. And, and it has a permanent, of course, it's got a, a front porch on it. It's white building, very stately looking. And on the front porch railings, it has a permanent sign that says, go Army, beat Navy. It's always there. So it was a unique place, and, I, and we were there for 18 months. But I will admit that I did not foresee going back to the pace of USREG that I mentioned before, which is always fast and furious. Yeah, from hero to zero every month, as the saying goes, and I think still does. It wasn't that at West Point. It's a totally different environment. And there's not a high, there's not a high NCO presence at West Point, not anywhere near what it was in the recruiting command. But uh, as at the Air Force Academy, each company at the West Point or Air Force Academy, Naval Academy, or so forth, is going to have a senior non-commissioned officer assigned to it, as well as a, a tactical officer, a captain, usually a captain. Uh, and they work as a team. There are a few command sergeant majors, one in charge of the hospital, one in charge of the Army band, which is a very unique place for the Army. Back then, West Point had, was one of four Army special bands. When you were assigned as a musician, an Army musician, a soldier, you were assigned there for your entire career. Oh, really? There were people there that were in the band 
and they've been stationed there for over 20 years. Yeah. That's a really cool assignment. <laughs> yeah. And there's other, what do you do? Yeah. You've heard of, uh, there are so many ceremonies and so forth and they are military musicians or experts at their craft before they're even enlist. They have to, Yep. you don't go into the army and learn to become a musician. You're a musician. You go into the army and, and you just hone your craft to, to the army. And I know it's the same. I was always impressed by the guys who could literally stand there with the big drums or the tubas in their dress uniform in the sun and never pass out. Like yes. that was the craziest. That was always the craziest thing for me. Yeah. Yeah. Same here. All the parades and ceremonies that you had the Air Force Academy, of course, the West Point and Naval Academy, and that was going to have the same thing. You, I'm, I know you've heard of Pershing's Own, which is one of the, you, you always see them at 4th of July, Washington, D.C. and so forth. Those are other special bands. And if you're selected for those, and I didn't know that until I got to West Point, <laughs> I honestly didn't know that. So it was a unique experience. Uh, <clears throat> and we were, again, we were there for 18 months. All the kids are still not in college yet. But at a certain point, I realized that I needed to focus more on the family. And mm. so that's what I did. And, and, uh, and I talked to several people with whom I, I respected about some advice about when is the right time, of course, is different for everyone. I wasn't in a hurry to take off the uniform. I, I love serving, served for 26 years, seven months exactly, but it was time. So I did a job search and came across the job that I have right now on USA Jobs, again, at Fort Jackson, and a place I was familiar with, arranged a telephonic interview and was offered the job before I even submitted my retirement paper. So if nothing else, that was good for peace of mind. You knew you were going to call it at your time at West Point. You knew that was going to be it. You talked to some people about when to end your, could you have kept going? You, was it 30? Is It's a 30 year oh, ceiling. Yeah, you could, I could have kept going. I probably could have gotten another, well, I would say year at, at West Point because the superintendent has the option of selecting his own Command Sergeant Major. Mm. So mine, uh, and, and that's that, that, that was the case here in my case. But mm. I can't remember when the superintendent that I served with left. Because obviously, I left before he did. And if another mm. one had come in, they do have the option of selecting someone else. And I could have put my hat in the ring through the Human Resources Command uh, for the Army of some other assignment out there for a command sergeant. Gotcha. Uh, okay. And so what advice did you get when you were talking to those people about deciding when to leave? A lot of advice I got was pray about it. I did take part in a, I did take part in a Bible study. I want to say it was Wednesday at lunchtime in one of the buildings there at West Point. And we were very much involved as we were everywhere we went with our church or in this case, we actually attended an on-post chapel on, uh, on West Point. And so I got a lot of, just go to the Lord with it. And eventually you're going to know what to do. I talked to my dad quite a bit. And he gave me some interesting advice based on his personal experience, which I think anyone that might watch this podcast could use. He was in a similar experience in 1967. He served 25 years in the Air Force, retired as the Lieutenant Colonel, 
he knew he was on the list for a promotion to colonel. He knew that. It was waiting for him. But he was struggling with, and he was very similar, had a job waiting for him in Birmingham, Alabama, in retirement home administration, which is what eventually became his post-military career. And his last year in the Army was over in Thailand during the Vietnam conflict. So we were stationed in Montgomery, Alabama, and he was overseas. And I didn't know this until he shared this story many years later, because I was only like in third or fourth grade back then. And I was like nine years old. But he said at a, at a certain point, some, I realized that the Lord was telling me, why do you consider this as being a situation where one position has to be somewhat negative and the other one has to be the right position? Why would you think I would necessarily put you in that position? Why couldn't it be a case of whichever decision you make is going to be the right decision? And I, I never forgot that. I always re remembered that. And uh, so I, I kept that in mind. That's probably what I dwelled on, dwelt on the most. That and, again, focus on what is best for our kids. Because my daughter, Rosalie, at West Point was in her second high school already. She, she started high school at Fort Knox High School on post on Fort Knox, which you rarely see anymore. And then continued on at uh, West Point. And then Gert and I, we said, yeah, let's do this. And uh, so I, I think there's probably after I made decision a couple of weeks where I had my Marty Wells pity party. I really don't want to take out the uniform, but it was the right thing to do. It was. What, when you were going through that identity battle as you were struck like what kind of described to me what that was like for you emotionally because you had like you said 26 you said 26 years of service yeah 26 years seven months exactly uh -huh. 26 and a half years becomes um part of who you are and it still is i'll be honest with you yeah mm -hmm. um but again i would be remiss billy if i didn't mention my christian faith in all this I think you should. And, and, and I, I mentioned to you that I made some mistakes when I was in school at Auburn. And I was raised in a strong Methodist family, had a good family upbringing, but I didn't have that personal connection with my Lord and Savior. I, I just didn't. I, I don't know why. But when I met my wife, when I met Gert, who had recently come to the Lord right before I called her like two weeks before our first conversation. Um, we, we all, the, the, we call it our God thing. That was my saving. I literally believe she's, she is God's saving grace personified for me. And we've built on that. Our, our faith has always been uppermost in our marriage in the way we, I say we, and I really, it really slants toward her, raised our kids, because especially in Ushrek at those upper echelons, that was TDY a lot. Uh, and, and missed a lot of events and so on and so forth. <clears throat> so I give her all the credit. We had a great church everywhere we went. And I think it has served us well and has served the kids well, because they're all very well, as Jer Jeremiah and Michaela, 
uh, and Rosalie and, and Noah are very much involved with their churches and, and so forth and their Christian walk and their relationship with the Lord. So that was really, that was a foundation, a buttress for, even though it may have been difficult in a practical sense, that I was taken off the Superman uniform, the Superman cape. And one thing I, I believe about being a Christian, I said, look, the Lord, I believe that God's word in, in, in some way says, uh, the Lord never said it would be easy. He said it would be worth it. And my life's verse is James 1.12. And if I may recite that, it's, is blessed is he who <clears throat> perseveres under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Basically, I paraphrase that as hang in there. It's going to be worth it in the long run. And so as, as a fellow Christian, I know you, the Bible says, especially in Paul's writings, uh, it's not going to be easy. Look at what our Savior went through on the cross. And what I have experienced in life is nothing compared to what he has. So as the old saying, you got to pick yourself up by the bootstraps every now and then. Okay to feel sorry for yourself for a little bit. Now you just got to suck it up and drive on. I, I just always remember that and have tried. I remember it now and I can get into some, some of the things I'm doing now. I'm 65 years old and I don't see myself as being that age which I don't mean that to sound egotistical. I just don't, that's not, I don't have that mindset that a lot of people do once they reach a certain age. And I can give you several examples. I got a couple new hobbies, which is pretty cool. But back then, when it came time to take off the uniform, the reason I believe that I was doing it was the right reason. And I think God honored that. And so we came back here again to a place we were familiar with. A job I'd never done, but did have a lot of connections, still does, to the recruiting command so I could leverage my experience and expertise uh, to the recruiting mission with the, uh, the Army Reserve ambassadors that I work with uh, in a lot of different ways and so forth. So that's where I got my peace of mind. It wasn't necessarily easy, but it was the right thing to do. And for anyone that's out there listening, there is life after the Army. There is life after the military. I don't care if you stayed in for two, three, or four years on initial enlistment and, and decided to, to get out and do other things, or if you retire, uh, there's life, a lot of life to be lived uh, after you've served your country. I think that one of the things that you say that I really like is um, as people who I found God I would say in a very serious sense, when I got out of the military, I, my parents were believers. I knew about God while I was serving, but very much so my identity was rooted in my service to my country. And so when I left the military, that separation was very damaging because my military identity was very much so the bedrock of who I believed that I was as a person. Uh -huh. And your story, I think, is very powerful because I don't think that there are very many, there are very few other more powerful identity forces in the world than serving in the U.S. Army for 26 years and seven months. And for a lot of people, 
that would be the true core of who they are as a person. That's a, it's most of your young life. It is your family grew up in it. You were highly successful in it. And so there's a lot of reasons that people would forgive you for saying, I am this thing, but because you have a foundation, because you believe that your identity is rooted in your relationship with God, that's one, that's the thing that's more powerful than your career in the army. And so it, it allows you to maintain like the core of who you are is unchanging because it's that belief is it will outlast you in the physical sense while your army career does not. And I think that's an incredibly powerful thing to bring up for people who are struggling with this thing of identity is there are things in this world that are, that will outlast your career and will go for the rest of your life. And if you center your identity around those things, you will be able to weather those shifts and those storms of life a lot better if you choose to ground your identity in something like that. No, that so. was uh, very astute and was excellent. I've got a lot of podcast episodes to practice this. Well, so. <laughs> you're, doing, you're doing, I can tell you're doing great. Again, my, my, my Christian beliefs, my standing with, with the Lord by his grace, not because of anything I've done, just because he gave it to me. Um, but s- second to that is when you, and, and you know this, and you served at one of the most prestigious universities in this nation and, and served our nation. And however many years, but we served a set of values that you don't put a price on and that are, are far above any individual. As a matter of fact, the Army has an acronym that basically summarizes its values, and it's called leadership, L-D-R-S-H-I-P. So loyalty, duty, respect, selfless service, honor, integrity, and personal courage. Those are the army values. And within two weeks of coming in the army, I used to be part of an organization called the Crew Military Ministry, where after I moved back to here when I retired, I was actually preaching God's word to uh, basic trainees at Fort Jackson through this Crew Military Ministry. It's, it's, it's still going on. I did it for a couple of years. And within two weeks of be- being in the army, they've already memorized those values and have at least a good idea that those are going to be a part of who they are for as long as they wear that uniform and they do their service honorably. Uh, and just because I took off the uniform, those things, there's, I try at, at best, my best to emulate them because they're who I identify as a person, just like you are very expertly articulated. Not to mention, so that combined with my Christian walk is going to serve me until my day comes to join the Lord where he is right now. And yeah. still a very young man. So that's a, that's going to be yeah, a long time. <laughs> yeah. Try, try to, to stay that way. Like I say, gotten in so a couple of new things, really enjoying that. And, yeah. But I, I, what? I would like to say oh. one thing if I could, for those that are getting out, especially for those that are retired and you've been in for 20 plus years, um, take what you've learned, take those values, take who you are and just 
really link in to your community. Mm. Your community needs you, whether it's serving in a nonprofit or training others in the job that's your second career, doing mm. whatever that is. What you learned in the military is always going to serve you well because it is part of yeah. you. You can't just because I said take off the. I was just talking about a uniform and a figurative sense, but the values will never they'll always be part of who I am. So one thing that I think is really interesting, I, I want you to talk me through some of these hobbies, because I do think that some people, especially once you get like, I'm 29 and part of me goes, you're what at this point is what you, which, and just stick with those things. And so what advice would you give to people, especially as you get out of the military, your value set becomes more diversified because you have time. Not everything is wrapped up in the Army or the Air Force or some other branch of service. What advice would you give to people for trying out new things to expand their scope of experience? Okay. If Gert was here right now and she heard that question be answered, she would probably try to get in the camera and just stare at me and waiting for me <laughs> to answer that question. Because, and I say that in a kind of a humorous sense, I would say it, have a bucket list. You got to have a bucket list and you could have a bucket list at 29 years old. There's no certain time to have a bucket list. As a matter of fact, I wish I had one earlier in life, but find out what you want to, to do. And, and maybe some people are retired from the military. Maybe they don't have to work. But there's always something, if you want to get involved in your community, there's always something you can do. And a couple, I'll do some of these kind of rapid fire and won't belabor them. But, and I said, Gert would stare at me in a humorous way. She thinks that I might be one of those people that get involved. I spread myself too thin by doing too many things. So I'm trying to master that. But for 12 years, I've been retired now. October will be, well, I, I will be in this job that I'm in now 14 years in October. And my retirement date is 1 January of, of 24, and that'll be 14 years as, as well. For 12 years, I was in Rotary International, if you're familiar with that. All about community service. Just to give you an idea, Rotary and the Gates Foundation have pretty much eradicated polio worldwide. So there's always something doing Rotary, Kiwanis, Veterans of Foreign Wars, these veteran service organizations or community service organizations. That's one way. Uh, I enjoyed that. I've taken really a leave of absence right now, but again, I did it for, for 12 years. I'm the chairman of a nonprofit called the Gateway to the Army Association. And for eight plus years, we've been raising money and planning and designing and building what we call Centennial Park on Fort Jackson in honor of its 100 year anniversary. We, we are just about ready to, we think, receive final word on our biggest grant, which is a little over 1.1 million that we're hoping to hear from early October to finish that project. So that's another example. And I'm doing that with a group of other eight veterans and community service leaders, including a huge board of advisors. Hobbies. Last July of last year, I started scuba diving. You would love it. You got to go deep, man. I'm telling you, scuba is, is, is one thing. I tell you, uh, I've got a good friend of mine who's a retired Lieutenant Colonel Army, who's now a deputy sheriff with the Richland County Sheriff's Office here in Columbia. And we've done everything together as far as scuba. So we've been in it, what, 13 months. 
now. Yep. And just two weeks ago, we earned the rescue diver certification. So we've got 11 other certifications and so forth and more to follow. So what's next on our, we need about 25 more dives to become master scuba diver certified. That's a big milestone. And we're, and we're trying to get that before the end of this year, before the water gets too, too cold here in South Carolina. And we could travel to Gainesville, Florida to go to warmer waters to get some dives. In. Uh, that's one. On today is what, 17 August? On the 19th, on Saturday, I take my first flying lesson. Congratulations. Living out your Air Force dream, finally. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I think I mentioned before, maybe I'm the son of an Air Force yep. pilot and the father of one. So I can't let that gap stay. I don't what know. Is your, what did your dad fly, by the way? Well, he, my dad passed away in, in 2021, just shy of his 98. Mm -hmm. The most famous one, he flew several of them. But the most famous one was the F-86 Sabre. Uh, oh, wow. If, if you in look uh, Korea. At, yeah. In, in that era, yes. Uh, yeah. As a matter of fact, if you look it up, you probably know what it looks like. Uh, his, I had to memorize the, oh. I know, I had to memorize the, I had to memorize it by its silhouette for okay. a test I had to take Roger freshman that. year at the Air Force Academy. And uh, yeah. yeah, I know all about those planes. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, yeah, his email once he retired, <clears throat> as long as I can remember, was saberdriver at AOL.com. S-A-B-R-D-R-V-R, Saber Driver. And, and he flew, I think, until he was in his 80s for the Civil Air Patrol. The, the, when you fly little kids to, if they need a hard operation from one location to another. Oh, like a life light type deal? Yeah, li li like life light. He, yeah. he did that. As a matter of fact, my last enlistment in the Army was when I was a first sergeant in New Haven, Connecticut. You remember I told you we were there. And he flew somewhere. He flew there on the way to one of those life lights, I think to Boston, with him and one of his flying buddies. And I had arranged for him to give me the ultimate enlistment because he could. He was a retired Air Force officer, just a commissioned officer, period. So he, me and my company commander and I, went up with him and his flying buddy in a small Cessna. And he was in the right seat, co-pilot. He turned around. I was holding a little American flag, which you have to have at uh, Reed Enlistment Ceremony, whatever size. And I raised my right hand. He gave me the enlistment as we were flying around. And so I had though, that paperwork there. So that has always resonated with me. So yeah, first lesson on, on Saturday. Looking forward to it. And this kind of dovetails into my next question, which is you're approaching a lot of these new things with a lot of confidence. And when you were still serving as a recruiter, you had, like you said, you felt like you almost were like Clark Kent changing the phone booth when you had to reach out to people, cold call, talking to people. What, why do, what do you think people can do? I think that a lot of people tend to stay in places of comfort when there is uncertainty and fear yeah. and whether that's leaving the military, getting a new job, trying a new hobby, going diving or whatever it is. And you seem like someone who is unafraid to go try new things, but in your career, you also had to constantly put yourself in pretty uncomfortable situations, whether it's leadership 
or as just as a line recruiter, why do you think you were able to do that? And what advice would you give to people to build more confidence within themselves? Okay. Another excellent question. And, and I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to go back to uh, an answer or a reply that I've, I've, I've already stated or in some context, <clears throat> I, I, I get, I give God all the credit because on, on certain, some of the things that, that I'm doing that I've put off for a long time, whether it's a hobby or actually I take my first course in, in the doctorate of ministry program in biblical studies at Liberty on this coming Monday. And again, I'm 65, but be quite honest with you, I don't care. And I'm going to go for a doctorate, and, but it just gets back to, I don't think I would do that if it wasn't for my faith. If it wasn't grounded in someone, and, I, and obviously as I'm reaching across my something, meaning this, God's Word, the Bible, I don't think I would have the confidence that I do now. I'm not cocky or anything. I'm just, hey, God's going to look out for me. I'm going to try this because I want to. And, uh, and everything's going to be okay. Maybe, and I can't do everything. I've had to pull back, for instance, for my interest in martial arts, which I did with my sons for many years, and I started to get back into, but recently had to tell my, my master instructor that I'm going to have to pull back because this doctorate degree is just going to be too demanding. I can't do that. So I, my wife was proud of me. He's, oh, so you actually pulled back on something. Uh, yeah, so, so I, I did do that, but I say, yeah, just, but the, especially for retiring from the military, you've already got what it takes. You've had experience, whether it be in leadership, whether it be some good, some bad, some things that success and dealing with not successful missions or whatever the case may be. You've had to overcome failure just like I have, and you've been endeared with success. So, but to me, I attribute it to my Christian faith. And it doesn't mean it's easy street because it, it, it will take a lot of money, a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of effort, and, and some money too, I'll be honest with you. Uh, but but to, to me, I just consider it an investment. <laughs> some people may ask them, Marty, wh why are you doing all this? Especially if it might, for years, I put off the education at the doctorate level. Because I couldn't answer the question to myself, well, what are you going to do with this if you are successful? And I finally just said, you know what? I'm going to let God handle that. He, he'll let me know. And uh, somehow, despite my, <laughs> my scholastic record at Auburn, which I already embarrassingly shared with you, I got a, a master's while I was in the Army, did much better, took several graduate courses at Liberty to get some biblical studies background, six of them over the last year and a half. Really enjoyed it. And just looking forward to the next uh, opportunity, the next challenge. And I don't know what I'm going to do with it. I like that you, I like that you just settled on. I'm just going to go for it and do it. I just finished a book today, actually called Wild at Heart by John Eldridge. I know it. I and, read it. Uh, great book. Um, nope. And one of the last chapters, he talks about how he decided to go to school and he has this quote. I don't know if he quotes it. I don't know if it's him saying it or if he's quoting somebody, but he basically says, if you have a dream, never ask how, 
because how's just going to cut the legs out of something that you want to do because then you're just going to psych yourself out with all of the logistics. But if you believe that God has called you to do this thing and you just go do it, then you're putting that faith in your creator's ability to make things happen. They talks about how he turned down a job and then was like, I don't know how I'm going to pay for this degree. And then a day later, somebody calls and goes, yeah. Hey, we think it's cool that you're going to do this and we would like to pay for it. And it's just, it's yeah. a really powerful story. And just, I think that you leaping out and I don't know what's going to happen with this, but I'm just going to go do it. I think is really awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That's the mindset that I've had. And, and I got to give you another example, if I may, especially for the, for the men that may watch it, but there's a women's equivalent to it. I just don't know a lot about it. <laughs> but I also work out six days a week early in the morning, like 5.15 to 06, with a group known as F3. Have you ever heard of it? F is in Frank or a fox, but an F3 stands for Fitness, Fellowship, and Faith. So if you go to f3nation.com, and it is small groups, small cells, if you will, of men uh, that work out together certain days of the week. It started in Charlotte, North Carolina, I want to say 2011 or 2012, I think in November. So fast forward to, what, 11, 12 years. It has grown exponentially. It's everywhere to include overseas, international. And it is really meant to give men a way to bond, to develop camaraderie, to overcome just being a lone man out there. A lot of people suffer from things, whether it be depression or identity, things like that. So ever since 13, I think it was February, I've been involved in it. And right now I work out with a group that if I generally work out, I know this sounds crazy, Monday through Saturday. And we're always doing some workout. It's based on really the Army's workouts. We start on time, end on time, 5.15 to 6, or on Saturdays, 6.30 to 7.30. We do calisthenics, all age groups. We leave no man behind. It's, it's peer-led. We always lead it where there's no professionals, so on and so forth, voluntary. And it's fun. It can be challenging. Today, we had a good workout which was led by that retired Lieutenant Colonel. Matter of fact, we did today's workout was in honor of the anniversary of Airborne for the Army. So a lot of history. Imagine doing 101 four-count flutter kicks. Uh, that was part of the, the workout. But I'll, I mentioned that because, again, that's something else I'm involved into. And it, it is a good, for lack of a better term, filler or replacement from the camaraderie in a lot of ways that I had in the army, uh, not to mention the physical fitness. Each, the first workout you go to F3, this is the fun part, is you get a nickname based on your background. So we always end in what's called a circle of trust. And we'll count off around the circle. I think today we had seven of us. They're generally small groups. You don't want them to get too big. And then you just grow into another group out there. So there, there are several different cells in Columbia, probably more than a dozen easily, uh, which is great. We, always, we also do a lot of community service work for good organizations, raise money for families, whatever. But getting back to the nickname, so you get in the middle of the circle at the Circle of Trust, and you tell the people, the guys about your background, where you went to school, 
What do you do? Your family, kids, hobbies, favorite foods, anything. And then based on that, you throw out nicknames and whoever is in charge of that workout for that particular day gives the thumbs up or thumbs down on what the nickname will be out of the ones that are discussed. Or you might get a raise of hands or hula or whatever. So in our group, we have everything from Lemmy, Cottontail, Betty Crocker, Geppetto, Rudder, Flapper. Um, but I must say, I try not to brag on anything in life. Do you have the coolest nickname? I have, I, in my opinion, have the most testosterone-laden nickname in the history of okay. F3. Which is really, I wish I could show you my license plate on my car. Is it on your license plate? (laughs) So, my nickname is FMJ. Oh, I like that. That's a very army, that's a very army nickname for sure. Well, but you got to guess what it stands for. Doesn't stand for full metal jacket. I'm it does. It does. Oh, it It does. does. Okay. Which I know was was, that was a, a movie about the Marine Corps, but. First of all, I could care less because Full Metal Jacket is just a full magazine of ammo. So, and it gets to the point where you're not necessarily supposed to like your nickname. As a matter of fact, one of the guys who used to work out with us is a huge Clemson fan, but his nickname is Spurrier. Oh, no. Who the last place he coached was the University of South Carolina, which is the arch rival of Clemson. So yep. it can end up pretty bad, but I'm, I'm pretty proud of FMJ. So I have F3 hyphen FMJ on my South Carolina license plate. I love that. I love that. So it's cool that you brought all this up because it actually, again, we're killing it right now, dovetailing right into all the questions that I had for you. So you talked about replacing the loss of camaraderie in the military with these groups. And I think for a lot of people who get out of the military, because you're just given friends, especially if you don't have a church or something like that, you're really just like, you show up to your unit and they're like, here's all the people you're going to hang out with all the time. This is your new family. This is your new family. Good luck. What advice would you give to people? You've already talked about getting involved in the community and stuff like that, but what advice would you give to people about finding friends or finding groups of people to become part of their life? Because you really have to, you're investing in them in a much deeper way than you are in the military because it's like you might be in South Carolina forever. Uh-huh. And so yep. it's like you were going to be with these people forever. Yep. And so how do you recommend people approach that specific, like not problem, but aspect of life post-military? Yeah, yeah aspect of life. Well, again, for me or someone like me who's a believer, I would say it starts with the church. To go back to when I was, when just to give you an idea, when I retired and came back and we moved back here and I started this job that I have now uh, in October of 2009, that was our 10th move in 17 years of marriage. And I went through a lot of those with you, pretty much all of them. But every place... We went. The first priority was finding a church. The second priority was to find good schools. 
or to find a good school and then find a church within those districts or whatever. But we're definitely going to find a good church. I can't emphasize that enough. Not only is it a place to worship, but it's a it's a place to meet people. Now, church is, is made up of, of, of people. So that's my best advice. And then you have a lot of community service organizations that if, depending on what you want to do, if you want to have an impact on, let's say, selfless service, they're out there. Again, my choices happen to be rotor. There's a lot of veteran service organizations, whether it be the BFWs or Employer Support of the Garden Reserve, ESGR, uh, Kiwanis Clubs, so on and so forth. You can go to the library, which my wife works at the main library in Columbia, South Carolina, and they can link you into community service. Okay, here's some recommendations we have for you. But you have to want to get involved. Because if you just stay focused on just you and my opinion, there's so many opportunities that you're just letting go by. Uh, and, and I believe that the Lord is going to bless those who really, if you can put other people ahead of your own self-interest, you're not only going to achieve helping others, but you're going to help. One of the best ways to help yourself is to re look for ways to help others. And that is in the Bible. Uh, and I don't mind... I hope you don't mind me saying oh. No, not at all. I think that all of the real truths are like all of the fundamental truths that, that I base my identity around are found in the Bible. So I think that it's, yeah. I think that it's the right thing to say. And I really like what you say about pouring into people. I, I hope to do a video series about this someday, but I have this really strong theory. So I have core, four core values that I think someone needs to make a good transition. And one of them is community. And within community, I really think you need three types of, you need three types of people in your, in your group. You need people that you're following. You need people that you're walking with, and then you need people that you're leading. And so yep. if you don't have someone in each one of those categories, you don't have wiser people showing you the way you don't have people that can support you because they exist in the same period of life as you. Mm -hmm. And then you don't, if you're not pouring into people, then you're robbing yourself of the ability to serve, which as a military individual is a core tenant of who we are, but also a cup that just keeps getting filled like a vessel that just has stuff pouring into it eventually will explode. No, if it's not releasing the pressure as well. Absolutely. That that is excellent, those three things. I, I will say one of the smartest things I've done lately was it's been several months ago. Now I don't know if it's been six months, but there's one of the elders of our church who's a former president of Columbia International University, which is a widely respected Christian school. <laughs> and I asked him to consider serving as I as my mentor through this journey with Liberty University. And he didn't he said absolutely. So he's been on an extended summer vacation to Canada, but he's due to come back here pretty soon. But we use we usually meet for lunch at Panera Bread about every two weeks. And I tell you, Billy, it has really been good for me to just to hear his insights on my spiritual walk, recommend books, whatever the case may be. There are people out there like that for other veterans, regardless of how long you've served. Um, I just find that a church is one of the 
best places to find them. That they're in those, they're probably in alumni associations from where you graduated from. If you lived here, one of the things I would recommend is, hey, check out the Air Force Academy Alumni Association chapter here. It's a good starting place because they know people that know people, number one. Uh, and you're just going to make friends that way. I've looked for fun things to do. And again, you can't disregard yourself. Now, there are some, once I become really good at it, Jeff and I, my scuba buddy, there's a lot of community service we can do picking up trash at the bottom of a lake or whatever. And you're going to meet people and doing that. It's a great way to meet people. And the same, I would presume, if this flying endeavor comes out again. There's just so much out there, even bigger than what we experience in the military. But you do have to not be afraid of cutting the umbilical cord because you know you can do it. Your experiential knowledge and so forth, regardless of if you stayed in for your number of years or five or six times that, that long, you have life experiences that are going to not only serve you well, but serve others well. <clears throat> and life is, is full of some risk, some bigger than others, but don't be afraid to get out there and just do it. I'm not saying you can do everything because certain things do require resources, one of the most important of which is money. Now, some of that may come from, other, like you just gave an example that was in that book. Which I don't know if I mentioned, I've read that book, by the way. Matter of fact, I just recommended it to someone else. That's a great book. And another thing, if I may, I think in life, every once in a while, and this is, this might have been in that book, I think, also. Uh, I shared, there was a period of time, like a two-week pity party, where I felt like I was isolated in the desert at West Point. Because I was at that decision point on what to do regarding retirement or not from the military. And I believe that being in the desert in a figurative sense is a good thing every once in a while, especially for a Christian like me, like you, that, that means we're one-to-one -one with the Lord. And that's basically why, <laughs> why some of the, the people in the, in the Bible had to roam around the desert for 40 years because God was waiting for certain things and then they paid the price. But again, uh, just because we're in a temporary deserts doesn't mean that we're there for a reason, but then we're not going to be there for the rest of our life. We step out of the desert and we step forward into the next phase that God has for us. And I don't know necessarily what that is for me, but I'm not losing sleep over it. I've, I did that enough time during my time in the recruiting command with that mission that just never stopped. And I'm just trying my best not to do it. I lose sleep over the well-being of my family or whatever, which I'm very blessed in that regard. Hopefully that's of some value. <clears throat> no, it is. This is all, this is, this has all been of amazing value. My last question that I want to ask you <laughs> is what is the final piece of advice that you want to leave listeners with before you, before we cut the episode? I would say that the final piece is God isn't finished with you yet. He isn't finished. 
And we've all got to, we've all got to hang in there, put our faith in God, not be afraid to, to step out on the precipice when he deems it appropriate for us to do because we aren't doing it alone and he's not going to evade us. And don't be, for lack of a better term, reluctant or even afraid to reach out to someone. And a lot of times in the military, be, me being one of those, kind of, I think there's a good pride and a bad pride. The, the, the Bible talks a lot about the bad pride, having so focused on ourselves. When I say pride in the military, pride in the values, pride in what we do, pride in, in, in trying to live up to something greater than ourselves or, or someone greater than ourselves. And, but don't be afraid to reach out. If you need help, if you need a friend, there's people out there in all the places that we've discussed, admitting that you need help uh, in some way, whether it be spiritually, mentally, physically, physical fitness-wide or socially or whatever the case, there's people out there that, that can help you. And that's, that is okay. Because again, the, the Lord has, I call him the grand architect among other things. He's got a plan for you. It is flawless. And you've got to hang in there and have faith in him to let you know what it is at the right time. And he's going to give you the resources to, to, to be successful at it. That's yeah. awesome. Well, I think that's great advice. I think it's, it's the most important thing that anyone can hear. And I really appreciate you coming on today to tell everyone your story. I really, I'm, I'm really grateful. Well, I, I've enjoyed it, Billy. You are an expert. You're a master craftsman at what you're doing. <laughs> this is great. Thank you. Great. I, I really appreciate it. And I appreciate it. I'm blessed to be able to do it. And I'm blessed to have people like you come on and take two hours and 10 minutes of their life to tell everyone about theirs. Well, I appreciate it. I look forward to, yeah. to watching that and others. I need to watch some yeah. of your other ones. Sorry, I haven't. It's a... Oh, it's okay. It's okay. You're a busy guy. As everyone now knows, you've oh, got a lot going on. Um, just join the ride. I love it. Well, thank you for, again for coming on. And thank you to everyone out there who has made it to the end of the episode. I am incredibly grateful that you have decided to spend time with myself and with Marty. If you like this content, please follow, subscribe on whatever platform you're on right now. It would really help us out. And share this with anyone who is struggling with trans a transition in their life or is preparing to leave the military. But thank you again for making it to the end. And we will catch you on the next episode of the Post-Military Podcast. Peace.